Let's read uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and it's on the screen. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, as I uh, have conversations with people, I often find myself sort of filling in the blanks a little bit. And uh, so I just thought this morning, um, I'm going to give you just a quick little biographical sketch and then come back to something. And uh, basically, I was born and raised here in Edmonton. I graduated from Bonnie Doon High School, if anybody of you uh, know kind of the, the southeast. I went to the University of Alberta. I think a few weeks ago I shared about my uh, career path through university. And in the end, uh, graduated and then attended Taylor Seminary right here. It was Edmonton Baptist Seminary at the time. Moved to Calgary, where I was an associate pastor for five and a half years. During that time, met my wife, Tina, from Cleveland. Uh, we got married. She moved there. We lived there together three years. And, uh, and then headed out to Ontario, where I was a senior pastor for ten and a half years. And we lived in Armprior, Ontario, just outside of Ottawa, for twelve and uh, just two and a half years ago, God called us back to Edmonton and specifically to TCC. And it's been uh, the best two and a half years of ministry, I think, in the last 20. It's been awesome. It's so fun to be part of, uh, of this church family and what God's doing. It's, uh, it's so fun. But uh, one of the things that I was always afraid of in coming back to TCC was knowing that one of my former seminary professors, Dr. Sid Page, was in this congregation, on the elder board, and I thought, you know, if they really ask them, there's no way that they're going to hire me. <laughs> and I knew that. And um, this is probably my most embarrassing moment ever in my life, and it was in one of his classes. He's probably had so many students. I pray that he's forgotten about this. If he hasn't, I pray and ask for your forgiveness, Dr. Page. But while I was in seminary, I also worked part-time in a church, and so I always split my responsibilities by working part-time, by going to school full-time, and you know how that is in the time. And, and, uh, and I had put off a particular assignment for one of his classes. His class, I believe, was actually Pauline Studies, which was a study of Paul and his letters, the Apostle Paul. 
And uh, I was given an assignment. It was on Paul's soteriology. I know that sounds pretty exciting. Uh, you know, you all want to go there right away. But basically, soteriology is a theological term for the study of salvation. And so I was given this task to write a paper, but it wasn't just write a paper. It was to do a class presentation. And so, can't believe I'm telling you this. I pulled an all-nighter trying to get this paper done. Came into class just going, this is awful. I have no clue what I'm talking about. And you've got, of course, you know, other seminary students sitting around and then Dr. Page. And honestly, it was horrific. Because I remember this. This is like, we're going back like 20 plus years. And I'm like, still there's times where I just sort of shudder when I think about it. Finally, he just had such compassion on me that he finally just said, um, you know what, we've heard enough, you can just be seated. <laughs> and I think ever since that moment, I, I, come in, I can't believe that I stand in front of people and do this because I expect them to stand up and say, Norb, you know what, we've, we've heard enough, you can, you can just take a seat now. And uh, oh man, it was awful, awful. I hope that in these last 20 years, I've learned a little bit more about Paul's soteriology, about salvation, about what God has done in our lives. I have to admit, too, that I'm a bit of a news junkie. I stay up late. Probably, Tina would say, way too late. I try to catch the CTV news at 11 o'clock on a regular basis. Sometimes I'll even watch the, you know, sort of the latter part at an earlier episode with the time shifting and all that, and then I'll catch the first half at 11 and just try to make it sure I got the whole thing in. The internet sites that I visit most often are probably news-related. I'm not really sure what the attraction is, honestly, but uh, um, I guess it's just kind of being in the know, being wanting to be aware of what's taking place. And the trouble with the news is that most of it is bad news. There was one day I remember this summer where I remember just scratching my head where the first four news stories were all just horrific things. There was a, I think it was the tornado in, in the St. Louis area. There was an earthquake. There was flood. There was drought. It was just awful. And I remember thinking, going, this is, this is all bad news. Even Friday night, if you caught the news, it was the, the lead story was that horrific plane crashing into the grandstands at, a, at an air show in Nevada. You see, when the newscast starts with economic news, you know that it's probably been a bad day on the markets. If it starts with weather news, there's probably been a tornado or a hurricane. Many people, you know, last, last weekend and before, were glued to the news reports of this uh, abduction of this three-year-old in Sparwood, B.C. But any way you look at it, it seems like there's always bad news. However, if you can get past the first 20, 25 minutes of bad news, there's often good news, right? Some feel-good news, advances in medical research, extreme acts of compassion, or stories about people who've made a difference in the lives of others. So as Lloyd Robertson used to end his newscast with, and that's the kind of day it's been. Life, like the news, is full of contrasts. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the passage of the Bible that Pastor Ken just read for us, we find a picture of contrasts. And in it, the Apostle Paul uses some very descriptive words to provide for us a, a great summary of the incredible transformation that God brings about in the lives of those who put their trust in Jesus. 
God's purpose here in chapter 2 is to remind his readers about this great change that God has brought about in their lives and to encourage and strengthen them with respect to this new identity. See, Paul knew very clearly the environment in which many of them lived. The story of the birth of the church in Ephesus is dramatic and exciting. You could read about it for yourself in Acts chapter 19. The church in Ephesus, to whom Paul is writing this letter, it existed because Paul had gone there and preached the word of God. Men and women, they turned from their idols and from their wicked ways, and they turned to faith in Jesus. And now Paul is writing them to remind them of the wonder of everything that has happened to them and how this change took place. It really is a story of grace. And so this morning, we're going to continue this new series that we've simply called 3G. A series of messages that will emphasize grace, gratitude, and growth. And so let's take a closer look and see maybe if we can place ourselves into this story of grace. And let's start by looking a little at what life is like without Jesus. In verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about this. And if we could describe life without Jesus with only two words, I think those two words would be hopelessness, and helplessness. You see, to be without Jesus is to be without hope. And what does it mean to live apart from Jesus? Paul says, first of all, in verse 1, you were, and just notice the past tense because that'll make sense later on, but you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He clearly is not talking about a physical death, but he's speaking spiritually here. He, he's speaking about the fact that a, that a life without Jesus is a living death. It is to go through every day dead on the inside and alive on the outside. And one might even look really good on the outside, but there is a, an emptiness, maybe an anxiety or a despair on the inside. And Paul says that we were dead in our sin. And this takes us back to the first book of the Bible where Pastor Ken took us last week. And it reminds us of the fact that men and women were made in God's image. They were made in God's image to live as his children in his family, aware of his presence, rejoicing in his guidance, enjoying this incredible relationship, living in freedom. Which, of course, carried with it the possibility of disobedience. And so God speaks into that Eden experience, into the reality of their circumstances, and he says to them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge and of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And if you read those passages in Genesis, you will see that they did exactly what God told them not to do. And they ate of that tree, and yet we find them running around. In fact, they ran off to hide from God. And God comes looking for them, right? Where are you? They were hiding, and they were ashamed, because shame and guilt had now entered into their existence. Because spiritual death had entered into their experience. You see, up until that moment, created in God's image and enjoying relationship with Him, suddenly and instantaneously, all of that is shattered. And the dust of death settles on our forebears and is passed down through all humanity from generation to generation to this very day. 
Why? Someone asks, you know, do I feel as bad as I do? It wasn't a particularly bad week at work. It's been a nice weekend, but as I sit here on this Saturday surrounded by my newspaper and my remote control, why do I feel this awful sense of emptiness? Why do I feel this paralyzing sense of anxiety? Even though on the outside everything looks good and people even speak well of me, why is it? And the answer is right here, you see. Because a life without Jesus is a life without hope. Because we are dead in our sin. It's in this spirit, state of spiritual death that Paul goes on to say that we followed the ways of this world. We gratified the cravings of our sinful nature. And as a result, verse 3, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's a pretty bleak picture. That's an awful place to be. Because by nature, objects of wrath. Because that is God's attitude towards evil. We shouldn't think of the wrath of God in terms of some fiery outbursts or uncontrolled temper, but rather that God cannot stand sin. And that's the bad news. Life without Jesus. Hopeless and helpless. Because you see, some people continue to believe that if they can just change themselves... Make themselves a little better. Uh, You know, change their world. Do enough good things. Change their circumstances. And if they do all of that change, then they will find the peace that they long for. And it may work for a moment or a few days. We might feel pretty good about ourselves. But not in the long run. Because we would still be dead. Still without Jesus. And so that's... The bleak picture, that's the bad news. That's the first 20 to 25 minutes of the nightly news. So let's compare and contrast this with life with Jesus. Paul says here in verse 5 that God has made us alive in Christ. That's a pretty clear contrast already, isn't it? He's saying, in one sense, in the past sense, we were dead in our sins, but now we've been made alive in Jesus. In verse 6, Paul says we're raised up with Christ, referring to experiencing our own resurrection, right? That's the description. That's the word that you use when someone goes from death to life. They've been resurrected. And he says that they've been seated then with him, that is Jesus, in the heavenly realms. Again, here's this contrast from basically earlier being under the, the thumb of the ruler of, the, of this world, he says, or the dark age, is now being seated with Christ. From being dead in our transgressions and sin to being alive and created to do good works, which amazingly God has already prepared for us. So while life without Jesus is marked by hopelessness and despair, life with Jesus is marked by purpose and meaning and joy, and hope. So there really is this study and contrast here, right? You see, Paul is really contrasting a former way of life without Christ and a present way of life with Christ. Without Christ and with Christ. And so throughout this passage, in these ten verses, he keeps reminding them that they were once just like the rest of humanity. He says, 
now you're no longer like that. In fact, if you move down just a few verses into the second, the, the next passage there, he, verse 12, he essentially says, he says, you know, your, your previous existence, it was marked by all of these things, okay? Separated from Christ, without hope and without God. And then come these two crucial words. Don't miss them. But now. But now. Things are different. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, separated from God, you have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And as we look at these two contrasting ways of life, life without Jesus and life with Jesus, the implication that we're faced with then is, where are we living? And and more specifically, we should be asking ourselves then whether or not there's ever been this but now experience in our lives. Whether we can look to maybe a period or a season in our lives or a specific event. And this, you don't have to be an adult to think about this. We heard from, from Natalie this morning. At four years old in childlike faith, to the degree that she would understand what her mom taught her about what Jesus had done for her, she said, I want to pray. I want to know Jesus. I want to cross that line. Maybe we can mark a spiritual milestone in our lives. But somewhere over the course of our lives and the journey that we're on, at some point, were we brought to see the fact of our own spiritual lostness and our deadness and our emptiness and our hopelessness and then to be understand that we were redeemed or we were rescued from that. We were saved from this former way of life because of this but now experience. We sang at the very beginning of the service, I know He rescued my soul. Do you know? Do you know? Can you, can you just, without a shadow of a doubt, say, absolutely, yeah, I understand that was my former way of life. I've had this but now experience. Maybe it took a little while. Maybe it was a specific event. I remember that. Now I'm on the other side of the equation. You see, it would be very unlikely, I think, in a group such as this, if there weren't at least a few who were maybe on the wrong side of this but-now equation. And maybe as bleak, as bleak as it was to consider what life without Jesus looks like, maybe there was this sense that, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable, but that is a bit of how I feel this morning. I want to say to you, you don't need to keep living there. The reason Jesus came was so that there might be a second chapter in your life. He came so there could be this radical transformation that God would bring about in our lives. Sure, there's difficulties. Natalie testified to that this morning. And I love how she ended. She goes, I'm only 24. There's going to be more of the story. We all have a story of grace. 
But what's really important in this passage is not just to consider the life with Christ and the life without Christ, it's to understand how and why this transformation takes place. How are we made alive in Christ and why? You see, in verse 4, Paul says, let me tell you how and why this happens. You see, this is the wonder of God's grace. And he introduces it with this three little, this, this little three-letter word again. But. But, he says, and you know this was true, he says, you, you know where you used to live. You, you know where you used to hang out. You know the stuff that you used to read. You know the things that you used to do. But here's the wonder of it all. But because of God's great love for us. Because of his great love for us. Notice how Paul includes himself in this. Right? He didn't say because of great God's love for you. He says because of God's great love for us. He can't even speak about salvation and about what Jesus did at some arm's length. He's just been describing himself. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he was a religious person, but he was rebellious. He stood around, he stood by while there were others who were stoning Stephen to death. And he knew that while he was religious, he was driven by desires that were opposed to God's design. And so when Paul says, because of his great love, he knows that the love of God is unique and it's infinite and it's amazing. The the hymn writer says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. Probably some of the greatest words ever written in a song in terms of the picture it paints. Try to picture this, picture this with me, okay? Could we with ink the ocean fill? You got an image of standing at the ocean and as far as you can see is water. That's all ink in this image. And were the skies of parchment made? Was it just a big paper, a big, a big scroll? Then were every stalk of wheat. Just drive from Edmonton to Calgary and look to the right and to the left and think of every one of those stalks of wheat being a writer's pen. And every man on earth, a scribe or a writer by trade. And they were commissioned to write about the love of God. It would drain the ocean dry. Nor could that scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. See, Paul says here, the wonder of God's love is expressed in the fact that we who were dead in our transgressions and sins have been made alive in Jesus Christ. And so by his death, He has taken my punishment. He suffered for my sin. He's taken my place. He's removed the barrier to a relationship with God. He's spoken into my life in the way that he's spoken to the life of Lazarus in all of his deadness in that tomb. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And out of there he came. And you see, this is what it means to be a Christian. It is that I who am dead hopeless, who could do nothing to make myself alive, helpless, hear the voice of God 
speak into my soul and call me out. You see, some people try to change themselves and it's not working because the great need for us is this powerful work to be done within our hearts, changing us from the inside out. And so often we try to change ourselves from the outside in. But what we need is a work of grace. And I don't want us to miss this. Look at how descriptive Paul is in these verses about God. He just talked about his great love. And if you scan through these verses and see this, God is rich in mercy. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. In other words, when we were at our worst, when we didn't deserve it, he extended his grace to us, his unearned favor, and he saved us. And all of this, he says, so that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. Friends, when I read that description of God and when I stop and think about it, that is almost overwhelming to me. It is overwhelming to me. Great love, rich in mercy, the incomparable riches of his grace, kindness, This is why Jesus died for us. And he did it to save us from this hopeless existence and spiritual deadness of life without him. And so how are we saved? Verse 8 doesn't get clearer than this. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. What a great picture, right? Salvation is a gift from God. Even the very faith that we would then exercise is a gift from God. All because of his grace. So now what? What I've covered this morning is really a theology of salvation. My hope this morning was just to clearly communicate that we are saved by grace alone. That we can't do anything to deserve God's love and grace. And and it was when Natalie was sharing this morning, I leaned over to Pastor Ken and said, man, I don't don't need to share anything this morning because she just said it in way less time than I just took. Right? I mean, she said it. I know God's grace. There's nothing I can do to earn it. And he saved me. Is that your story? Is that your story of grace? When we think about theology like this, let's not be afraid of it and think of it as some abstract thing out there that they study in in seminary and stuff like that. Because when we understand theology, when we understand the Bible, when we understand what God has done for us, when we understand who God is, it absolutely has implications and application for how we then live our lives. Right? We just spent the summer on a study of knowing the Father's heart, knowing, knowing more about who God is. And know, all along we said, when we know that God is gracious, then we should be gracious. When we know that God is generous, then we should be generous. It just follows because we're made in His image. And He's trying to remake us in that image. So it's very clear. And the same is true here. 
What do we do with this? Let me just take you through a couple of things that I thought of. First of all, I come back again. If you're on the wrong side of this but now experience, run to Jesus. Don't walk. Run to Jesus. In the song we sang this morning, and I didn't catch this before, but I often find myself knowing where this message is going, and then as we're singing a song, I'm going, oh, that, that fits. You wrestle with the sinner's restless heart. And maybe this morning you're, you're sensing that wrestling going on. You've had this restlessness in your life. You've had this, you know, you maybe not thought about it in those terms before, an emptiness, an anxiety. You couldn't maybe quite put your finger on it. And now hearing this, you're going, I hear what he's talking about. I remember I was 13 years old, way up in the high bleachers of then the Coliseum, now Rexall Place. Billy Graham was in town. I went every night. I listened basically to the same message, but didn't affect me in any way until the very last night. And whether I was listening more closely or whether that was the time God tapped me on the shoulder, which I believe it was, I just felt this wrestling going on. And when that invitation came, as he does, to walk from those upper aisles, my dad was sitting next to me, and I turned to him and I just said, I'm going. Because that was how I had to respond. You see, unless you have come to this but now experience, you're still living in chapter one of your life. And God has yet to write chapter two, but He wants to write it. And since you can't turn the page yourself, you cannot begin it yourself, then you ought to bow and wonder before His love and an acknowledgement of the fact that He ever even wants to begin chapter 2. But believe me, He does. See, it's true. God's grace is a gift to us. But we have to humble ourselves before God. We have to exercise the faith that He's given us and come to Him, acknowledging our need our sin, and our need of a Savior. And so can I just say to you today, if this describes you, don't harden your heart. Run to Jesus. You don't know how many of these opportunities you will have. So come and experience His transforming grace. Secondly, I thought about this because of where we're going in a couple of weeks. Be baptized. Be baptized. I want to be careful because this has nothing to do with being saved, okay? We are saved by grace alone through faith, not through faith plus baptism or plus anything else. It is through faith alone, by God's grace. But by being baptized, you are publicly testifying about this incredible change that has taken place in your life. You are going to tell people, essentially, I've had a but now experience. This was my former way of life, but now... This is my present way of life. At TCC, we we baptize adults because they can express their faith. And we baptize them by immersing them in water. And we do that because we believe that this form of baptism best pictures the change that has taken place. 
When people stand in the water of baptism, it is a picture of their life without Christ. And when they're put down and under the water, it's symbolically dying to their old selves. They're, in essence, buried. And then when they are brought up out of the water, it symbolizes being made alive in Christ. And so baptism then becomes this outward and physical sign of this internal spiritual change that has taken place in our lives. And those who know Jesus, who have run to him, should be baptized because it is an act of obedience. If you want to talk about this some more, we have a baptism scheduled in two weeks. Talk to Pastor Ken or myself after the service. Email us. Just get in touch with us and say, you know what, I'm ready. I need to do that. And lastly, this seems so obvious, worship Him. I realize that that's a really broad term. Can't you be more specific, right? I mean, it covers a lot. But let's just think about this for a minute. Think about what's taken place. We were dead without hope and without Jesus. But God, because of His great love, but God, who is rich in mercy, but God, by His grace, saved us? I mean, how how does one respond to that? Except to worship Him. To worship Him in gratitude. Our hearts ought to be overflowing with thanksgiving when we think about what Jesus has done for us. Our hearts will want to sing His praises, joy. And sometimes when we think about the wonder of that, maybe it leaves us speechless. But I love it, church, when we sing. When we really sing. Because it's an expression of the wonder of what God has done for us. And it's our response to Him. And then, not only in gratitude, but also in obedience. We live lives that then, uh, we, we desire to reflect His glory. Because how we live really matters. Because yes, we're, we're saved by grace, but we also live in grace. Uh, again, I refer back to what Natalie said. She, she talked about, even as a 19-year-old, a young adult, she came to understand the depth of God's grace in her life when she went through a deeply personal time in her life. A struggle. You see, we're saved by grace, but we continue then to stand in grace. And there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, right? Salvation is a gift of grace. And in verse 10, Paul writes, For we are God's workmanship, okay? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, we are not saved because of good works, but we are saved for good works. And this is what gives our lives meaning and purpose. God saved you and me because He has a plan and a purpose for us. Paul wrote to Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, these words. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us now, after salvation to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, catch this, eager to do what is good. So that becomes our response. 
worship. We live our lives where we are people who think, you know what, I want to be a person who's eager. Eager beaver. (laughs) Eager to do what is good. You see, grace saves us. It changes us. It teaches us. It keeps us. It motivates our living and enables us to live the life that God intended for us. And so, are we ready for another Monday because of His amazing grace to go out and live, as the Bible says, to the praise of His glory? Can you imagine the impact on those around us? You're different. What is it about you? Well, we might begin. Let me tell you. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I can see. I was without hope and meaning and in despair. But now, but now, I have hope and meaning and purpose because I had an encounter with the grace of Jesus and he changed me.